0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Sorry about that. (laughs) For those of you who are familiar with uh, the Gospels and with Christianity, this should be a relatively familiar story. Um, It's often thought to be the first miracle of Jesus' public ministry. And one of my kids asked the question So, do you think Jesus ever performed any miracles when he was a kid? And the answer is, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say, so we'll say, because the Bible's silent on it, I don't know. But in terms of public ministry, this is his first. And what I'd like to do is focus on three themes that are found in this story. Uh, One is very uh, sort of implicit-explicit. The other two are specific to the text. First is marriage, the second is joy, and the third is power. Marriage, joy, and power. First, this miracle takes place at a wedding. And I don't think that the Bible does anything randomly or coincidentally or haphazardly. That is to say that marriage is a significant part of the human story. Jesus, as the Word became flesh as the second person of the triune Godhead, very much understands and knows how significant marriage is for human existence and human flourishing. And so here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we read again, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And it's interesting that for a man who would never marry, he would not only make the first miracle that he performed at a wedding, But he consistently referred to marriage and weddings throughout his teaching in the parables of the wedding banquet. When he was confronted by the Sadducees, he spoke of marriage and marriage in heaven. The reason he did this is because marriage is something that was found at the outset of creation prior to sin entering into the world. It was really God's first institution created, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And while not everyone will marry, such as Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, Scripture realizes how instrumental marriage is for human society. Bishop J.C. Ryle, who uh, lived in the 1800s, he commented, society is never in a healthy condition, and true religion never flourishes in that land where the marriage tie is lightly esteemed. So you can see that if there's one area that Satan will attack, it's marriage. If there's one area that is so difficult because of sin, it is marriage. And if we want to see the world, our society, our culture flourish, it is through the institution of marriage. But of course, we know that today in our world, marriage is very much under attack and under assault, this fundamental institution. So the question is, why does God care so much about marriage? Primarily, it's because marriage itself is a picture, a metaphor, a reflection, a pointer to the relationship of Christ and the church, as Paul writes about in Ephesians 5. You don't get a more foundational relationship than what Jesus did for you and I. We are a picture of God's grace, and so marriage was always intended to be A picture of God's mercy, of God's kindness, of God's grace. Marriage is also the venue upon which sanctification takes place, almost at its crux. You know, it's when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus gave himself up for her, the church, to present her as pure and spotless. In other words, to present her holy, to to sanctify her. That's a picture, that's a reality of what the picture of marriages and marriage was that supposed to be that place where a man and a woman are being sanctified. It's a difficult place. And why? Because marriage is that venue upon which we destroy our inherent self-centeredness because of sin, we become our own gods. The most challenging place to be in is where you face another human being who also wants to be their own God. And there's going to be a a clash of the titans, you might say. A clash of gods in marriage. When two gods collide and clash, there is no fusion power or atomic energy greater than the power of two idols clashing. And marriage forces that hand. It covenants it. It brings it together. And marriage is that intentional yielding of ourselves to God and to another So that we might thrive, but the thriving takes place in the collision, in the conflict, in the sanctification. And so we should never be surprised that when you marry someone, you actually face another person who does not see things your way. In fact, so often, quite the opposite. We might hear phrases such as, if you only knew how much he did this, and I've heard that before. Or she always gets her own way. My way is the right way. My way is best. And objectively, even with other people saying, yeah, I think that's true, it's still a battle. It's still tough. Well, marriage is that place where we experience joy, but not because of perfect harmony. We experience joy because of the conflict the conflict with our own sinfulness. And perfect harmony is so often shattered during the wedding, or perhaps the honeymoon, or maybe the first week after being married, or maybe the first year. We should not be surprised by that. We should expect it. If premarital counseling is done rightly, it will be, you should expect this. Now, I, I'm not saying that we should have this really morose view of marriage. Oh man, why should I be married? Well, I, I I tell you that you don't experience the fullness of joy without going into the depths, the miry pit because the rescue and the salvation that comes the the redemption, the resurrection that you don't experience joy like that without being in that miry pit. But As long as you are an individual sinner, and if you're placed into a covenantal relationship with another person who is also an individual sinner, it should make sense that we struggle in marriage. Tim Keller writes, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. We experience, and you should expect, the pain of marriage. But if you can trust in Christ through it, you experience the wonderment of marriage. Just like the gospel. And only that relationship is truly transformative. Anything less and you're settling. I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for in my marriage to simply be partners or business partners, glorified roommates, um, parental managers. I mean, how many of us have yielded our marriage and given up and said, I guess I'm just a parental co-partner, a manager, a business partner with this man, this woman. If that is you, you're settling. And what the Lord is saying here is he did not create marriage for you to simply get by, to just make it, to squeak by. It doesn't mean that you don't face hardship. And as long as you are an individual sinner, In this covenantal relationship it will be hard it will be difficult there will be real pains and sorrows and yes you can avoid the pain and sorrow by not talking by not talking about anything serious by not confronting by not giving of your heart by not giving of your heart so much that it might be stepped on actually but if you're not willing to vulnerably reveal your heart, and even to the point of complete pain, you'll never experience the joy that the Lord has set before you in marriage. You cannot understand the wonder and beauty of marriage without pain and struggle. Without the pain and struggle, and I know so many of us concede that, we say, I don't want pain and struggle. I just want to have peace. And so we never deal with any core issues. And by doing that, we're protecting ourselves actually not from the person we're married to, but from the Lord. The Lord has given you your wife and your husband so that you can deal with the self-centeredness of your soul, your idolatry that is core in you because of sin. And until you recognize that and say, I'm not going to settle gonna fight for this marriage, and I'm gonna fight for honoring Christ above all, only then will you experience the joy of the Lord in that marriage, and so just like Genesis 2, where marriage is at at the very beginning of human history, so too John chapter 2 is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry to show us the significance of this wondrous institution, that our God has graciously given to us called marriage. Secondly, the second theme that we're going to look at in this miracle of water turning to wine is joy, the joy of the feasting at weddings. Now, most of us have been to weddings. Um, Many of us have participated in weddings. Some of you more often than others Many of you have actually been the bride or groom in a wedding. And I think you know that joy and weddings don't always go hand in hand. Weddings can be quite stressful. And working with enough couples, knowing that, yeah, weddings are are challenging. And I've I've had my own share of, uh, you know, difficult experiences at weddings. I remember the first wedding that I ever officiated. I was a little nervous, and so I... Um, Before I was talking to the bride and groom and I I had this little binder and I uh, had notes in it and I dropped it. This is before the don't worry It wasn't during the ceremony itself, but it was before and I was talking to them. So picked up the pieces stuck it all into the binder and Went through the ceremony thought great. Everything went great and then afterward the bride came up to me and said I Never said any vows (laughs) And I was like what and then I looked down, and there was a piece of paper on the floor—the vow paper, page—and and she said, are, "Are we really married? Then <laughs> you're really married. You are, you are." I've seen and been a part of weddings where the ring has ding, 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 fallen off. Um, I've seen the ring bearer run away. Um, I've seen. All sorts of chaotic things happen in ceremonies. And you look at the bride and groom and there's this plastic smile, but it's everything's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. Weddings are hard. They can be really challenging. And in this wedding, something went wrong too. We see it in verses three and five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. A few thoughts here. Weddings in Jesus' day were often over a few days, sometimes up to five days. And it was expected that if you were the parents of the bride and groom, you provided food and wine for all the days that the wedding feast was taking place. Now, Jesus' family, you know know their story. They were not wealthy at all. They probably really struggled for finances. And most likely because Mary was speaking into this issue, she was probably a relative of the host of this wedding. They probably were people who really struggled financially, and so therefore, they naturally ran out of wine. (laughs) And so you can imagine perhaps the the sense of shame it would be like you hold, hold uh, holding a wedding for your children and you didn't have enough money and you didn't have enough food for half of your guests and so is there anything that gets people more angry at a wedding than not having food or the right food especially the older people. <laughs> I mean, they, they really want good food. And so imagine half of the people not having food. What would you hear in response? You would hear, oh, they're so cheap. Oh, they're so unorganized. This is, they're not even prepared for their first wedding. Oh, figures, these poor people. They, they couldn't even throw a proper wedding. In a tight-knit community such as this, where guilt and shame were a powerful motivator, and where people's lives were intertwined and business ties, reputation, all those things are interconnected. It was a complete disaster. Another note regarding this aspect of the wedding is Mary. Mary has a very interesting role here. And what's interesting about Mary's role here is that if you come from a Roman Catholic background, Mariology or the sort of the emphasis of Mary specifically as a mediator or a mediatrix, the one who would intercede for us to God, to Christ, a lot of that flows from this passage. And the reason is because the idea is that, well, Mary listens to Jesus, and Jesus performs the miracle on the basis of Mary asking for it. And so the Roman Catholic Church takes this and says, well, Here's obviously the picture of Mother Mary being the means by which you can pray to her. And I went to a Catholic school, and I took French in Catholic school, and we had to say the Hail Mary in French. I mean, I still remember it to this day. Je vous salue Marie, plein de grâce. Le Seigneur est vous. You know, I mean, it was... I had to do that every single class. And I was... I don't even know... French, well, let alone, you know, but I, I came to realize that um, why does the Catholic Church believe this? And you look at this passage and you say, that just doesn't seem to connect with what the Bible says here. Because one thing you know is that Jesus' response to Mary was not a positive response. And first of all, she's, he says, woman. And that's very sort of startling at first, right? It is, like, you, you, <laughs> he's the son. And he says, woman, and so the question is why? And the answer to that is that Jesus is moving into a public ministry, he's about 30 years old, and it's very important, and you will see this throughout the gospels, that he shifts from an earthly family to a spiritual family. And the spiritual family takes priority I mean, if he had done this on the basis of the fact that he was the son of Mary, well, then he would have been just like every other son who felt some sort of filial piety towards their, their mother or their father. So we all know, and especially those of us who are older and have older parents, when the parent says something, there is this instinct to say, well, you're the, you're the elder, you're my elder dad, you're my elder mom, so therefore I need to accede to you. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not gonna be the primary relationship. I am here to do the will of my father. That is utmost. And that also says something about what you and I are to consider as family. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care for our family, our mother, our father, but Jesus is so clear. We'll see this, that once we turn to Christ, and also, this, we're going to find this to be the case forever and ever in eternity. Our family is actually here. And yes, I have a biological, earthly mother and father, and I must honor them. I have an earthly wife, and I must love her as Christ loved the church. I have earthly children where I have to protect them, provide for them, care for them. But that will end one day. But what will remain is my relationship to them if they're in Christ as brother and sister. And that's the same here. And I, I wonder how much we take heart to that. You know, I think we got a little bit of a sense of that at the retreat. Like there, I didn't feel as though, I mean, I was with my wife, my kids, but I was with my family, the family of God. And there was a warmth and an intimacy and a love and a delight to be with you. It wasn't just because I got a couple of encouragement cards, and I got a really awesome one from Michaela. <laughs> uh, I, it wasn't just because of that. It wasn't just because I got some great conversations. It's because I was with my family. And Jesus is going to make this point to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary is a special woman. She did bear Jesus. That's incredible, but she's still a woman, an earthly, fleshly woman. She is not a mediatrix. She is not someone who has special anointing in heaven that we pray to her, and only then will Jesus hear us. No, we can go directly to Christ, who he's our mediator. He's our great high priest, as Hebrews tells us. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There is coming a time for Jesus when the hour will come, but it is not yet here in this wedding. And so he doesn't have to do this. And here's the thing about Mary's request. It's Jesus do this for me in my time now. And Jesus' response is, it's not, I don't need to do that for you now. That's very important for him to say that, because if he said it on the basis of simply being the son of Mary, then she would define who he is, not the father, his heavenly father. But, so, I, I think we get a sense, though, of Mary's faith in the end in verse 5 when she says, do whatever he tells you. She didn't know what he would do. What mother, though, would allow her son to rebuke her without any response, with, without anger, frustration? Is it perhaps that she accepts that rebuke and then acts in faith and trusts the situation to the lord and says whatever you will whatever you will now the lord doesn't say we should never ask him for help in fact quite the opposite john 15:7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you but it's how we respond after he responds to us we ask He responds, and then what we do after that makes all the difference. Will we trust him no matter what? Will we trust his will? Or will we reject him because he hasn't answered us in the way we believe he should? And by the way, the way we believe he should answer can sound really holy. Oh, Lord, please cause my husband to worship you. Now, that is a really God-word longing for a wife who wants her husband to know Christ. But is there perhaps in our hearts a sense of, but you need to do this now in my time. And sometimes the Lord will say, okay, I will answer that, but here's how I'm gonna do it. You're gonna go through a lot of pain. You're gonna have to trust me because I'm not just gonna work in his life, I'm gonna work in your life too. And the way I'm going to do it is by causing you to be patient and wait. And are you going to persevere? Are you going to be faithful? And even then, I might not do it. Will you still trust me to the end? This is sort of the idea of how we think of God's will, is that it is done in my time, my way, my plans. Instead, trusting that God is the one we believe in place our hope in, no matter what the answer is. Now to the wedding itself. Once he discovers the wine vats are empty, he finds these really large water jars. He has them filled to the rim with water. And then he said to those filling the jars, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And this is something that we will see throughout the Gospels when Jesus performs miracles. He doesn't just say, filled water and it's done. And then somehow it pops over to and fills in everyone's glasses and then they drink and it's there. He utilizes different people. When the blind man is receiving a sight, Jesus says, I want you to take mud. I want you to put it on your eyes and put it and put it over. And why does Jesus do that when he certainly doesn't have to do that? This is the God of the universe who says, let there be light and there's light. So, We know that Jesus doesn't have to use people to actually see wonders done. And I think the reason is that the Lord wants us involved. He wants to show people even through their response that God is using them. He's showing them something in every single aspect. And then these jars are not haphazardly chosen. Yeah, they're big. They're very big. But these jars are used for Jewish rites of purification. And so what they would do is they would fill these water jars. They'd be blessed. And then you would use them, pour, it, pour out uh, little bowls. And then before the dinner, you would wash your hands as a sense of purification to say that by washing my hands, it's a symbol of the purification of my heart, that it cleanses my heart and prepares me for this meal or this Passover meal. Why does Jesus use these jars? Because he knows water in these jars does not cleanse anyone's heart. It's a symbol. That was the old way, the law. But Jesus comes and he transforms water to wine, or he transforms the old to the new, so that the law is now fulfilled in Christ. Water cannot purify anyone's heart. He can by his blood. And so Jesus is going to do the transformation. He himself would replace the water with the wine. But the cost of this transformation was far greater than this miracle. It's the end result of this miracle, verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Some argue that, oh, no, 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 Jesus can't be making wine. That would be wrong. That would be, I mean, wine is bad, 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 bad. Or they would say, oh, no, no, in Jesus' day, wine had very low alcoholic content. So it was basically drinking water with a smidgen of wine. That's it. But I I don't, Drink wine because sort of allergic to it. Little doses I can handle, which is the communion. <laughs> but I do know that if it was mostly water and a few drops of wine, it wouldn't taste that good. It would, wine is good because it's been fermented, the whole process of it all. And when we see what happens, we see something quite different. Methodist minister Thomas Welch. Yes, that Welch was so adamant about removing wine from communion that he came up, literally came up with the process of making grape juice, Welch's grape juice because he didn't want alcohol in communion. But everyone who drinks wine knows that the best wine is not watered down at all. I have a feeling the wine that Jesus made was the best wine ever in this world. If we could only taste that wine today and see, it would be more than the most expensive bottle of wine ever, I would imagine. Um, and I'm not advocating drinking as much as you possibly can to get drunk or anything like that. But wine, just like marriage, is meant to show us a reality, a spiritual reality. And what wine produces in your body is warmth, so your body temperature changes, it produces a little giddiness and joy, lightheartedness, celebration. We use it in celebrations. So there is a, a a picture of what wine is supposed to do for us and listen to what the Bible says the wine does for us. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 or 7, and the parallel text is found at the end of time in Revelation 21, 4. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts Will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So clearly the feasting and joy of wine is not just for today, it points to an eternal reality. And then Matthew 26:29 tells us that Jesus used wine at the Last Supper. And some think, oh, Jesus just gave out wine to the disciples. He didn't actually drink it himself. But look at what he says. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, uh, our elders, we, we uh, this was like in um, 2013, we took a shift from just having all grape juice To having wine we wrote a paper on it and primarily this was the main reason is that wine I want to drink wine I don't drink wine I'm allergic to it but when I do communion I always choose wine I want my kids to choose the wine I don't want them to drink the white grape juice now I understand some of you maybe struggle with alcoholism that there's an understanding to that but I want to encourage, eh, this might sound odd for coming from someone like me, but I want you to drink wine. You know, when you drink communion, drink the wine. We shouldn't have grape juice left over. And you know what? This little bit will not get my children drunk. It really won't. I want them to drink it because there is a physiological change that takes place when you drink wine. I feel warm. It does make me happy to do it. And I think that that's what we're supposed to be feeling with the Lord's Supper, that sense of joy. And I'm not saying go out and start drinking, like I said, getting drunk, but I do think that this reference to wine is, that, that little bit of feeling is supposed to point me infinitely to forever feasting in Christ. Why does the world get to enjoy these things and think, okay, but for a Christian, we need to be morose and solemn and gloomy no, we should be the most celebratory. We should feast. We should delight. We should laugh. And uh, George just said this to me. He was saying, you know, those who are the poorest of the poor, when they laugh, it is from the just the gut. I mean, it's the fullest laugh ever. You cannot hear that laughter. Because it's from... They don't laugh out of money or video games or a movie. They laugh because it's from their souls because of Christ. You don't need money for that. And what this wine shows us is that Jesus has blessed us immensely. We have such joy in him. So I hope you take some wine today. I hope if you let your children drink that wine today. I know that's you're thinking, oh my word, That's what is he doing? I don't know if I should be here but I really want to encourage you, remember what this points towards. So unless you really are struggling with alcoholism, I really want to encourage you to drink this wine. Okay, enough of that, enough of that joy. (laughs) Lastly, power. In this miracle, we see Jesus's power. Notice, Jesus doesn't say a word to change the water to wine. He doesn't even think about it. He just calls for the water to be filled, to be drawn out, and that's it. And he knows it's going to happen. Notice that Jesus doesn't ever pray for a miracle. He doesn't say, Father, please give me this miracle. He doesn't because he's God himself. Whatever he says, he doesn't even have to say. He just simply wills it. His acts of acts and actions of power is no different than our breathing. When you take a breath, you just simply walk and move and are breathing. That's Jesus doing miracles. It's nothing to him. I mean, he's that powerful. And so when everyone else is astonished by the miracle and say, like, how did this happen? He's just saying, this is just who I am. But this is the same power that saved you. When you think, how could I be freed from sin? It took the power of Christ to save you and to rescue. And it also takes the power of Christ to sustain you, to sanctify you, to make sure you finish the race. As we spoke about so much at the retreat, to finish the race to the end. But you don't have to doubt that you're going to finish the race because the power of of Christ is what sustains you to the end. You know, George often tells this story of going deep into Goma, where UN peacekeepers and the African Union forces refuse to go because it's so dangerous. And yet, he and Eric, who works with hands, they go there all the time. Why? How can they do that? Because they know the Lord will keep them safe. They do. They really believe it's the Lord who keeps them safe. He and if he should lose his life, both he and Carolyn have entrusted their lives to the Lord. They just do. They, so they know even losing their life, they're still safe, because they're safe eternally. Jesus' power is what keeps them safe, what keeps us safe. To place your life into his hands. It is the safest place you could ever be. Do you really think that like getting your kids to a certain type of college, to get a certain type of job, is going to keep them safe and prosperous. What does it profit a man if he gains his whole world but loses his soul? And I, I know this because I've lived that life. That's where I'm at. It's always a temptation. And I have to constantly go back and say, Lord, may it not be for the glory of my name. And if I'm honest with myself, that is a constant temptation. I want my kids to reflect my glory and the lord is saying that is terribly unsafe because if they go to school no matter the school no matter the 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 job no matter the career no matter uh, the amount of money they make but if they lose their souls are they safe no they're on a road to destruction and i am afraid that too many of us In this very important stage of parenting, we are perhaps, without even realizing it, drifting. Drifting towards they need to be the best athlete possible. They need to be the best dancer possible. They need to be the best artist possible. All for the cost, at the cost of their souls. And this is the most dangerous path you can take for your children. Do we really think my retirement plan is gonna keep me safe? Do you really think that if I have this house, it's gonna, it's, I just gotta buy that house and then everything will be wonderful from that point forward? It's a lie. You are not safe there. I can't tell you how many times I hear of people who buy that house, but in that house is a place of destruction, division, conflict, evil, and where people will say, I wish I never spent time in getting that house, working so hard in getting that job and working so many hours and being delinquent with my children, with my wife. We are not protected there. We are not comforted there. To think this way is to fail to see the God of God of almighty power here in Cana, he doesn't have to say, abracadabra. He doesn't even touch the jar. He just simply wills it. That's safety. That's where you are most safe. A vaccine will not keep you safe. A surgeon will not keep you safe. Making sure that everything is, you take your hand sanitizers and all your cloths and cover it all, a gun in your house. I was saying this in the first service. I, I recently bought a, a fixed blade knife. So when I go hiking, um, if a mountain lion comes after me and my wife, I will take it down. <laughs> I really did. I watched a bunch of videos where mountain lions are like literally going after hikers. So I thought, oh man, I need a knife. That's not, that's not going to keep me safe. I know it. I'm, I'm, a doom. I'm just another prey to him. With a, with a small blade, that's it. The Lord is the one who keeps me safe. He is. I mean, do you believe that to be true? This story, this miracle is here to show us God is in control of our lives. He is. He's the one who controls our children's lives. Can you trust him with your family, your marriage? He's asking this every day. The way I know that we can trust him is that Jesus not only changed the water to wine, dramatic miracle, but you know even this miracle points to another miracle, another cup of wine. This cup of wine would be used throughout Jesus' life. When did he use it? At the Last Supper? When he lifted up that wine, this wine is for a new covenant, if you just take a, um, just do a concordance uh, research, like a search in Google or wherever, on wine and cup of wine in the Old Testament, and you know what it refers to? Judgment, wrath, God's wrath. He always refers to the cup of wine as the wrath of God against sinners. So when Jesus takes that cup and he says, This is my blood, he's saying, I will bear sinners' sins with my bloodshed, and this wine will show that. It will prove that. And then after having that Lord's Supper, he goes with his uh, disciples, climbs the Mount of Olives. He has them stand aside. He goes to pray, and he's on his knees, and the intensity of that situation, knowing that he's going to the cross, he cries out and says, Father, if it is your will, Remove this cup from me. Take away this cup. This cup of wrath is too great. It's too strong. But then these final words, not my will, but your will be done. And then when he's on the cross, he's offered wine. Remember that? That wine is just constant throughout So the first miracle, wine, feasting, joy, promises. But the cost of the feasting joy and promises for his people would be, bear this wrath, this dark road, take it. And though it would be painful, he took it. And on that cross, he would still see that wine. So that, we read in Revelation, the wine of feasting returns for us, for me and for you. This is the God that we worship every time we come to this table. That's why I want you to drink the wine. Because when you taste that wine and it has a little, little kick and it's a little warm, you remember he bore this wrath for me. For me. That power, though, is now upon which I live. And I'm feasting. Forever, that's the promise. Where is your safety? Where are you most safe? Are you afraid in this world? Afraid of politics? Of who's president? Of a war? Of a, of a, of a disease? A plague? If fear controls you, you've forgotten that Jesus has done the work for you. He's the one who keeps you safe. The God of Cana the God who loves us so let's pray together father I am afraid that myself some here we forget quite often this great power that we have in Christ Jesus your son the word became flesh in this season of Advent as we look towards their incarnation thank you that you rescue us from sin and death forever as we drink this wine today, O oh Lord, the blood of Christ, as we experience the warmth, as we experience just the different feeling that that wine gives, may it sink deep in our hearts and cause us to remember that dreaded cost. Jesus, it would be so great that in that moment you would say, Father, Remove this cup from me. As blood poured out of your pores, Lord Jesus. You still said not my will, but your will be done so that you could rescue people like us. So that we could be sons and daughters. Lord, may we not come to this table forgetting this truth. And may we remember that our hope our safety, our retirement, our vaccine, our surgery, our children's lives, whom perhaps we have turned over to this world and have forgotten that it's a, it's a dark road. We surrender it to you, Lord, and we thank you for the cross.